Hi guys, welcome back to Box Tablet. I'm Julie Subrin. Today we're looking at Zionism from a different perspective. As lots of Bob Marley songs demonstrate, Jews do not have an exclusive hold on the idea of Zion as a place of freedom, of return, of home. About a decade ago, Emily Rabiteau began to feel stirrings of her own yearning for Zion. As a daughter of an African-American father and Irish-American mother, she grew up feeling acutely aware that she didn't quite fit into America's racial categories. And then there was her visit to Israel to visit Tamar, her close friend from childhood who had recently made Aliyah. The trip filled her with feelings of envy and longing for a Zion of her own. In her new book, Searching for Zion, The Quest for Home in the African Diaspora, we follow along as Rabito travels to communities of black Jews in Israel, Rasta communities in Jamaica and Ethiopia, to American expats living in Ghana, and then down south to visit her own aunts and uncles and cousins who were scattered in the wake of Katrina. We're talking with her today about this journey. Emily Rabito, welcome to Box Tablet. Thank you so much, Julie. I'm happy to be here. Emily, you begin your book with your first trip to Israel, which, as you describe, got off to a very bad start. Can you tell us about that trip, why you were there, and how it may have sown the seeds for your own search for Zion? That's right. Uh, for those who've been to Israel before, you may know that the security is pretty in- intense. And I, I, I was very untraveled at the age of 23. This was one of my first trips abroad, and I was a little too sassy with the El Al security when they asked me what my origins were, and I didn't have easy answers um, about my background. And uh, so I was trying to explain, well, I look the way I do because I have a white mom and a black dad. But they kept asking this question, well, where are you from? And I kept saying, you know, New Jersey, but that didn't seem to be the right answer. And um, you know, I was getting more aggravated because this had been a question I'd received my whole life. You know, where where are you from? What are you? And it never seemed right to me that the answer that most often satisfied was a racial response or the racial makeup of my parents. So, nevertheless, I got on the plane. I oh, went after having been strip searched. After having been strip searched um, because of the lippiness <laughs> with the LL security, it, God bless them. They were, you know, they were. I was young. They were young too, doing their job. Um, but I, I was angry about that and uh, unsure. I wanted to go into what seemed to me because of that experience um, and because of what I knew from the news and TV, like hostile territory. Uh, it was surprising to land in Israel and actually fall in love with Jerusalem, which I was not prepared for in terms of its physical beauty and um, the quality of holiness that almost seemed to be part of the fabric of the air. And as I wandered the city with my best friend from childhood, Tamar, who, as you said, had made Aliyah, I I began to feel quite jealous that she uh, had the choice to emigrate to another homeland, one where she ostensibly belonged and had a people to embrace her, you know, a place that was a kind of promised land. I mean, that choice of hers is particularly poignant because you've told us or tell us shortly after that, that you and she as childhood friends shared an otherness, you know, together. And I'd love to hear you talk about that. But then all of a sudden, she could take that otherness and have a home for it. And it didn't seem like that was a possibility for you. Right. Yes and no. I, we, so we grew up in 
uh, Princeton, New Jersey, where both of our fathers were professors, um, historians of religious history. And in that environment, in that predominantly um, white and quite privileged town, we both felt a sort of otherness that bonded us together. And it, it made us feel special in a way that we had uh, histories of strength and, and suffering to draw from. And when she moved to a place where everybody shared the same history and story, it looked to me like she was moving to a realm where she belonged to a, pe- a people in a way that I didn't have quite that that same option. But I think that was a, a simpler interpretation than, in fact, what she's encountered in Israel. Um, it seems to me that Tamar is a bit of an anomaly in many ways in, in Israel. She's, she's extremely critical of many elements of, of the Israeli state and, 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 and hasn't actually as, ha, had the easiest time assimilating. Um, nevertheless, she's remained there and, and, and struggles with her identity as a, a secular non-Zionist who's nevertheless chosen to live in Jerusalem and raise her children in that fraught and beautiful and complex environment. Mm-hmm. So at about that time, were you aware of black Zionist movements? No. I was so shocked when I visited Tamar to discover black Jews who I was seeing in Jerusalem, of course, were uh, beta Israelis, Ethiopian Jews. And when I remarked to Tamar that it was surprising to me, she said, you know, there's also another interesting community of black people, if you want to use that term, <laughs> living in the Negev Desert. I think they're from Detroit and Chicago, and those are the black Hebrews, are known as the black Hebrews. And I couldn't forget about them. There wasn't time on that visit to go to the Negev Desert and see how it was that these black Americans had come to Israel, and there wasn't really time on that visit, nor did I have the linguistic skills to walk up to the Ethiopian Jews and and ask, you know, what are you doing here? What's your story? But years later, after I'd become a writer and had the, the means to go back in a more journalistic capacity, I I went to find out the stories of the exodus, the exodus that these groups had taken. And then that spiraled out into a larger journey to discover for blacks of the diaspora who had chosen to leave home to find Zion somewhere else. What did it look like when they got there? Yeah, which is where we get to go with you in this book. So after you spend time in Israel, the next place we go with you is Jamaica, which my sense is uh, was prompted in part by your love of Bob Marley and his search for Zion that we hear so clearly in his music. Um, I listened to Bob Marley a lot in high school and college, and I still find his songs to be really moving. But I have to admit that apart from an awareness that they were songs about freedom and redemption, I wasn't really picking up on the theological underpinnings Can you talk a little bit about that theology as it was explained to you by the Rastafarians that you hung out with in Kingston? Sure. I went to Jamaica because I also, like you, had been a reggae fan as a young person and continue to be. And again and again, I heard in the lyrics references made to Zion, um, Exodus, Pharaoh. But I, I didn't know too much about the faith that underscores so much of those lyrics, which is uh, the Rastafari faith. And I thought I needed to know a little bit more about that faith and its ties to Judaism on my quest to understand more about Black Zionism. So I showed up and 
uh, was surprised to learn there are very many different sects or what the Rastas call mansions of that faith. So there's not really one group. For example, the, the, there's a, a group called the Twelve Tribes to which Bob Marley belonged. There's uh, another sect or mansion called the Nyabingi. We're very famous for drumming. Some of them think of marijuana as being a holy herb. Um, some of them shun drug use altogether, so they don't all all do that drug. Um, some of them think of white people pretty much across the board as oppressive colonizers. Some of them, such as members of the 12 tribes, are really open to talking to people of, of any race. And so I showed up at the 12 tribes headquarters in Kingston, Jamaica, and uh, was lucky enough to encounter three three men smoking herb who were really delighted to talk to me about their faith a little bit more and about their longing in particular for Africa in general as the promised land, but in specific Ethiopia as the promised land. And former Ethiopian emperor Haile Selassie as their godhead or a kind of messiah. Yeah, that is something I definitely hadn't known until reading your book, that the Zion that Zion was a specific place, that it was in Ethiopia, and that was a place that people, some people actually wanted to relocate to. It wasn't purely an abstraction. Right. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because Ethiopia being in East Africa rather than West Africa, which is where uh, the ancestors of Jamaicans, uh, slaves in the Caribbean, as well as America, would have descended from. There is no ancestral tie um, in terms of blood, bloodlines to Ethiopia. But the reason why that's such an important realm for the Rasta is that it was never, it's a nation that was never colonized. And so for that reason and a few others, historically and even biblically, all the biblical references made to Ethiopia, it's, it's seen as a realm of freedom and power and roots. And so many Rasta dream of, of return. And in fact, Haile Selassie gave a land grant to Occidental Africans, Africans of the West, the children of, of uh, descendants of slaves, to return. The, the largest wave of return was in the 60s, and there's still some men who are getting old now who, <laughs> who still live there, and, it, and it's, um, it's still a site that draws Rastas from the Caribbean as well as other places in the world. The part of the book where you visit Ethiopia um, was actually really depressing, I think, in a lot of ways. That sense of a disparity between the promised land as they had imagined it and either what they found there or maybe now what it's become. Can right. you just talk a little bit about what you saw and what your experience was like there? Yeah. First of all, the, there was a big language barrier. So although the Rastas felt they were making a return passage and reclaiming something, um, when they landed in this country, in fact, they couldn't really speak with the natives who were there. Uh, so they remain, even even just for that reason alone, kind of isolated. But then, of course, for uh, economic reasons, it's sort of hard to build businesses there. It's a poor country. It wasn't the land of milk and honey, perhaps they envisioned it would be. And their ruler was overthrown in a coup. Yeah. Right? So oh, there's that little thing, too. This man that they thought of as being godlike because he had... He had been the emperor, 
and was crowned at a time when Italy was trying to conquer Ethiopia, and also because he had done a lot for the nation in terms of uh, advancing it into the 20th century. He created Ethiopia's first university, uh, an airline, businesses, roads, hospitals, which these were all seen as Christ-like behavior by the Rastas. Um, they maybe turned a, a blind eye to the fact that he was also a dictator under whose rule hundreds of thousands of Ethiopians who were poor starved to death. But um, because, of, because of that dictatorship, he was overthrown in the 70s, right around the time that a lot of the Rastas were making their return trip. And there, there's a lot of irony there. Yeah. You know, he was seen as the oppressor in Ethiopia by most Ethiopians at that time, whereas the Rastas thought of him as being a redeemer king. In your book, you give examples of other places that have been conferred the status of a homeland or Zion by blacks in the diaspora in the 19th and 20th century in Ghana, Liberia, Sierra Leone. And these were places where people had placed hopes and aspirations to kind of return after this forcible deportation of their ancestors and, in, you know, when slaves were being taken from there. So given that, by and large, these places did not or could not deliver what does this say about Zionism as a concept? Is it meaningful? Is it useful? Is it just an impossibility? I began to feel personally on my journey, which I undertook, at least in the beginning, thinking this was a place I could locate on a map. Uh, at least I was interested in, in interviewing subjects who had tried to find Zion because I admired the bravery that it took for people to leave what they knew of as home because they continued to feel dispossessed, disenfranchised, to pull up their roots and strike out with this kind of pilgrim spirit to start a new utopia somewhere. I, th I thought, well, what bravery that takes, or you know, also kind of what insanity that takes <laughs> to do. It, it, these, are, these are dreamers I was talking to. And yeah, time and time again, I discovered that they didn't find or weren't able to create because of complex political reasons in each of the realms they emigrated to, the Zion they had dreamed. And to a degree that was depressing, but to another degree, I, 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 a lot of them had aged to the point where they'd come to be able to impart the wisdom to me that Zion was also, uh, and perhaps most importantly, an inward place coming to some kind of strength within oneself. Did you then ever feel sorry for them that they had, had that they had to find that out by giving up everything they knew? Or do you somehow think there was a value in that journey? I have to believe there's value in any journey, <laughs> especially when you're making sacrifices to get from point A to point B. Something has to be learned along the way. Um, even to just get to see a different part of the world a lot of these people were from the ghetto. And as one man I talked to in, in Israel, in the, in the African Hebrew Israelite community in Demona told me, when I asked him sincerely, do you really think that this is Zion for you? He cagely answered, if I wasn't here, I'd be dead. I, I came from a, from a ghetto in Detroit. And I, and I think that probably was true for him. He managed to become an old man, <laughs> you know? 
And the idea that there could be a place to strive for where um, where people could attain some kind of freedom remains very seductive and I think something we can't let go of. There was a man I met in Jamaica named Thomas Glave, who is a gay rights activist from what has been called by Time magazine the most homophobic spot on the planet. And when I told him I was on this quest to try to find Zion or to talk to people who tried to find it, he kind of laughed at me and he said, you know, it's it's a myth, right? And I said, well, yes, but <laughs> there's also a part of me that's genuinely looking for for something better. And he said something that really resonated with me, which was, you know, Emily, even if Jamaica became the paradise that tourists think it is for everybody, for all of us here, an island of Zion would be no Zion at all, as long as there are other parts of the world where people are tearing out each other's throats or at war over oil, over money, over land ownership and rights, then really you can't claim any place as Zion just because it feels like a paradise for some. Mm -hmm. And I think that was perhaps one of the wisest things I heard along the way Mm -hmm. about Zion. Yeah. (laughs) You end your book in the American South, which represents another possible homeland for you, since that's where your aunts and uncles and cousins on your father's side live. Um, That's a place of comfort food and gumbo and rice and beans and stuff like that. But it also, during your visit, was a place full of horrific stories um, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina and destroyed a lot of the homes of your relatives mm-hmm. um, in Mississippi and displaced them and raised a lot of painful questions for them about their status as Americans. Um, what does that place mean for you, and why did you end the book there? Yeah, my father was born in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, which is on the Gulf of Mexico. It's it's You can't get much further south than that. And Bay St. Louis, that area, is known as is known as the ground zero of Katrina. It, it hit really, really hard, and the destruction was extreme there. And I didn't think that this would be one of the sites of exploration when I began the journey, but it seemed to me that there was an exodus, like a contemporary exodus of another kind happening, which which my relatives were participating in, where they were forced to leave uh, their homes and 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 pack up and start elsewhere because uh, in many cases their homes were destroyed. But it was larger than that. It was that it was really hard to get assistance and support. There was a failure of, uh, of the insurance to pay and, and, and a failure in many ways of the government to care for these people. And so it seemed to me... It was part of the part of the Zion story as well. That, as one of my, I guess the the husband of a cousin of mine said, Katrina really shoved it in our faces that we are, you know, we're not cared for here. That this isn't really our home, and um, he meant that on a number of levels. It was very sad to hear, but uh, on the other hand, um, some of my family members are doing in some ways better than they would have if they'd stayed, or at least their horizons have expanded somewhat. So I have a cousin who's, whose daughter, for example, received a scholarship to 
a ballet school and it appears she'll become a professional ballerina. And that wouldn't have happened. It was, you know, she received this scholarship because she had aptitude as a dancer, but also it was a kind of a, I think, an act of charity to a Katrina victim. And that wouldn't have happened if she'd stayed in Mississippi. So so it's it's become a, their, their horizons have expanded. The world has become a little wider because of that. And I don't want to suggest that it wasn't a travesty what happened, but life goes on. People make, people make home, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, where they have to. And what about you? Are you feeling at this point like you know where your home is? Yeah, this, I mean, maybe will sound cliche, but I'm now pregnant with my second child. I've gotten married. I have purchased an apartment in New York City, where, which is too small for a family, the family of four that we're about to be. Nevertheless, in very literal terms, I've put down roots here. And I think the quest that I started at 23, which began in Israel and took me to some of the places we've mentioned, was the journey of a, of a, of a young person who didn't quite know where she belonged in the world. I, I, I perhaps made the mistake of thinking that those feelings had to do with uh, my own confused racial makeup. But in fact, I was just looking for my place, and I largely feel that I've, that I've found it. Not to say we've ever arrived completely <laughs> um, in, in Zion. I hope that's also maybe something we should all be constantly striving for every day. But I do feel more at peace in my, in my mid-30s than I did in, in my 20s. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe we should go out with some kind of a song of Zion. Is there one that you like a lot that we can listen to? There is a song I really love by Chuck Berry called Promised Land. And most people know of this song probably because Elvis did a more famous cover that became a hit. Um, but I don't think it holds a candle to the original by Chuck Berry. Emily Rabito, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Right away I bought me a through train ticket right across Mississippi clean. And I was on that midnight fly out of Birmingham smoking in the New Orleans. Somebody help me get out of Louisiana just to help me get to Houston town. There are people there who care a little about me and they won't let the poor boy down. Rabito is the author of Searching for Zion, The Quest for Home in the African Diaspora. It's out this month from Atlantic Monthly Press. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's podcast. Post a comment at tabletmag.com or just write us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com. For Vox Tablet, I'm Julie Subrin. Thank you so much for listening and do come back next week. Next week.